Hello and welcome to chapter 3 of the Gospel of John. Uh, we studied chapter 2 last time, and near the end of chapter 2, we have some things that set up what we're going to see in chapter 3. At the end of chapter 2, Jesus uh, cleanses the temple. At the beginning of chapter 2, Jesus is still up in the north in Galilee, and he attends the wedding of Cana, and with that sign and wonder of changing water into wine, Jesus shows who he truly is by doing things only God can do. Then he goes down to Jerusalem. They would say up to Jerusalem. I talked about that before. Jesus goes up to Jerusalem with his disciples, goes to the temple, sees that court of the Gentiles, which was a place that was supposed to be for Old Testament-style outreach for foreigners to observe. And he says, this is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. You've turned it into a den of thieves. And he drives the, the money changers out. And then the Jewish rulers come in. This is part of the setup for chapter 3. The Jewish rulers come in and they say, what right do you have to do this? What miraculous sign can you do to prove to us you have the right to do this? And Jesus said, destroy this temple, I will raise it again in three days. And then we're told uh, that, uh, it should come back in a second, uh, then we're told that Jesus did not do miracles in front of just anybody because he knew some people would reject him. But he did do miracles. He did heal some people. And so now that's our setup for chapter 3. Um, so... There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these miraculous signs you are doing unless God is with him. Well, first we talk about Nicodemus, and this is what describes him, a man of uh, the Pharisees. Now, the Jews did not have denominations as we think of them in Christianity. Uh, there are some things that are kind of parallel to that. Uh, they had what are often called Jewish sects. And what that means is divisions, parties, uh, Pharisees, the word Pharisee means people who are set apart. And since, well, for about 200 years, uh, the Pharisees had been rising as a group within uh, Judaism. And they considered themselves set apart. Uh, they were known for their strict observance of the law of Moses. 
later in the Gospels, we see the Pharisees teamed up with the teachers of the law. Sometimes they're called the scribes. And actually, uh, the teachers of the law or the scribes, many of them were also members of the Pharisee group. There were other groups too, like the Sadducees. Uh, many of the Sadducees were priests. They were considered more elitists. Uh, the Pharisees, uh, they were more the scholars. And some people have compared it to the Pharisees were more like the conservative party. Uh, and don't think we're talking necessarily about American politics. It's more they accepted the the literal truth of scripture uh, were uh, con concerned about uh, the spirituality of it all. Uh, the Sadducees were more, and being priests, they were more concerned with the ceremony and the tradition of it. Uh, and the Sadducees were also closer to uh, the Romans and the Herodians. The, the Pharisees were more nationalistic. So that's the Pharisees. Uh, we're also told he was a member of the Jewish ruling council. This is also called the Sanhedrin. And uh, this is the same group that Jesus was on trial uh, before toward the end. And uh, the Jewish ruling council didn't really have any civil authority because the Romans were ruling. Uh, at the time of Jesus' trial and crucifixion, they said, we don't have the right to put anyone to death because that belonged uh, to the Romans. Uh, so Nicodemus, a man of the Pharisees, a member of the Jewish ruling council, and then verse 2 you see, he came to Jesus at night. He knew he was out of step with the Jewish ruling council because they were yelling at Jesus because he was cleansing the temple. So he goes secretly, comes to Jesus at night, and uh, here's a, a word to note also. Nicodemus may not be coming just for himself. He says, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. No one can do these miraculous signs you are doing unless God is with him. Nicodemus heard about the miraculous signs or saw some of the miraculous signs. Remember, Jesus wasn't doing miraculous signs in front of everybody just in front of a few. And so that moves Nicodemus to want to investigate. Then Jesus begins his part of the conversation. And it seems like it's not quite connected to what Nicodemus is asking. But it is. Uh, Nicodemus is asking, who are you? What are you doing? Nobody can do these things unless uh, God is with him. 
both are asking or talking about what is God doing here? What are you doing? So Jesus begins his response and says, Amen, amen, I tell you, unless someone is born from above, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Uh, amen, amen. Uh, that's what's in the original Greek. In the King James, it was translated as verily, which has that sense of some, truly. Uh, the older edition of the NIV said, I tell you the truth. And that, that's what amen, amen means, or verily, verily means. Uh, this is, as Luther says, this is most certainly true. Unless someone is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Um, here we have difference in translation. Some have born again. And in Greek, uh, the word is anothen, and I've got it printed out on the handout. Uh, anothen can mean from the beginning. Like again, uh, it can also mean from above. When Pon Jesus is talking to Pontius Pilate and says, "You are not, you would not have any power over me if it was not given to you from above." The word there is the same as the word here. Uh, Luke, in the beginning of his gospel, says, "I began to investigate everything that happened from the beginning." That's the same word. Uh, so that word can mean again, it can mean from above. And here the, the context seems to suggest it's talking about work that God is doing, being born from above. Uh, so Jesus says, unless someone is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Think of our, our text analysis when I talked about what do we look for in the Bible, law and gospel points, catechism points. Here's a catechism point with the Lord's Prayer. With your kingdom come. Uh, what are we praying for in the Lord's Prayer when we ask for God's kingdom to come. We're asking for the way for God to rule in our hearts. We're asking for God to rule in the hearts of people everywhere. As his word is preached, as people take it to heart and live it, that is the kingdom of God. When Jesus tells his parables and says the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, the kingdom of heaven is like uh, a man who owed a king a great debt, or, or whatever it is. That means the kingdom of heaven, the way God rules, the way God goes about things, that's the kingdom of God. So unless someone is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Uh, the rule of God within a person's heart, both in this life and in the next. Uh, now in verse 4, we see something that Jesus makes use of more than once. He uses it several times. 
He says something that confuses somebody. Jesus uses that confusion to keep a conversation going. We'll see it with Jesus and the woman at the well in John chapter 4. We'll see it with Jesus and the crowd when he talks about himself as the bread of life. Uh, Nicodemus said, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Nicodemus is confused. He thinks about being born again as being literally born again. And Jesus then talks about being born from above, uh, being born of water and the spirit. Uh, that confusion with Nicodemus keeps the conversation going. Jesus answered, Amen, amen, I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Uh, Jesus clarifies what kind of a birth this is. Uh, not really... Uh, going back to the beginning and being born, but being born again, being born anew by the power of the Spirit. Here Jesus is teaching us something about spiritual life and physical life. Um, I've often said that there are many places in the Bible where words like life and death are used to talk about a connection with God. God told Adam and Eve, the day you eat of the tree, you will surely die. They didn't fall over dead, but that connection was broken. And so now they, Jesus offers us a new birth, a birth uh, from water and the Spirit. God reconnects with us. Um, verse 6, Jesus says, whatever is born of flesh is flesh. Whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. By that he's telling us on our own, with a birth from the flesh, we don't really have that connection. Whatever is born of spirit is spirit. God gives us that new birth himself. Uh, and then Jesus talks about the nature of this new birth. He says, do not be surprised when I tell you you must be born from above. The wind blows where it pleases. You hear it sound, but do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Uh, with the wind, you can't see the wind, but you can see what it does. Uh, you can hear it, uh, but you can't really see wind itself. Uh, the same it is, so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. On Pentecost, God did visualize that with tongues of flame and the sound of a violent wind. But with tongues of flame, the Spirit showed himself. Doesn't always work that spectacularly. Uh, God gives the new birth 
and sometimes the immediate effects are not seen. Nicodemus says, how can these things be? And Jesus answered, you are the teacher of Israel and you do not know these things. Amen, amen, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify about what we have seen, but you people do not accept our testimony. I've told you earthly things and you do not believe. How will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man who is in heaven. Uh, Nicodemus was one of the Pharisees, we remember. Many of the Pharisees were also scribes or teachers of the law. So Jesus says, you are a teacher of Israel, and you don't know these things. In the Old Testament, we do hear about the Holy Spirit. King David says, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Uphold me with your free spirit. Uh, God sends his spirit and things are created. Uh, he renews the face of the earth. Uh, Jesus says, we speak what we know, we testify about what we've seen. You people do not accept our testimony. That reminds us of the end of chapter 2. Jesus cleanses the temple, and right away they ask, what right do you have to do this? And then Jesus talks about himself. No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man who is in heaven. Jesus is telling us this is where he comes from. That last phrase, who is in heaven, uh, some translations do not have that. Uh, it's kind of the, the pattern of the EHV to include some things that others leave out. Uh, we remember that they didn't have computers, they didn't have photocopiers long ago. Everything had to be copied by hand. And so uh, what some scholars would think now is, well, maybe somebody saw this phrase from heaven and they just repeated it at the end of the sentence. That's a possibility, and that's the reason why some translations may leave that out. But we see this, and it, it, it's a, it just underlines what was said before. He's the same one who descended. Uh, and being in, in fully nature of God, uh, being omnipresent, uh, even though he's walking on earth, it's present in heaven too. Now, Jesus points Nicodemus to an episode from Bible history and talks about himself as the Son of Man and what his work as Savior is going to be. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Uh, the story, uh, going back to uh, the time of Moses, is the people were complaining. Oh, we hate this manna stuff. We question the leadership of Moses. 
And um, that was one of the times when God's dealings with his people work this way. He says, you don't like how I'm leading you? Okay, I'm going to step back and we'll see how you do. I'm going to take away my protection. I'm going to take away my guidance and we'll see how you do. And then snakes came in, were biting the people. And then the people said, ask him what to do. Tell him that we're sorry. Ask him what we should do. And God told Moses, put a bronze snake on a pole. Tell the people that if you look at it, you'll be saved from the snake bite. And that was the, the bronze serpent from the time of Moses. Uh, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man may be lifted up. We can look at that, see that phrase lifted up in two ways. One way is just as the snake was put on a pole and lifted up for people to look at, well, Jesus is going to be lifted up on the cross, uh, just as the snake was lifted up as something for people to look at and be saved, Jesus is also set before us as someone to look to and to trust and to be saved. And then the purpose of that is so that everyone who believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Okay, we see a thought that's going to be repeated in the next verse. Uh, something that, this is a very minor point. Uh, but something that is a question about this section is, where do you put quotation marks? In... Greek and in Hebrew, uh, there was there's punctuation that's been put in now uh, by editors, but in the original manuscripts they had no punctuation. Uh, they had no quotation marks. Uh, in many copies, there was no capitalization either. So we have the question. Uh, where do you put the quotation marks? Some people see this section with Nicodemus and the conversation with Jesus. Some people see this ending at verse 15, and then the disciple John is expanding that in what comes later. And I think I have to say I favor that uh, approach to it, that we put the Quotation marks after verse 15, this is where Jesus is done talking. Uh, and then the disciple John is expanding that afterwards. Uh, some people prefer, and they think the, the rest of this is Jesus talking too. I say it's a minor point because by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it is all God's word. And so it doesn't matter if it's a direct quote from Jesus uh, or if it's the disciple John expanding on verse 15, those who believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. Uh, now we get to that main verse, that central verse, central verse in all of Scripture. And as I said before in previous lessons, we see 
a lot of elements of John 3.16 in many places in John's gospel. Uh, we see that directly there in verse 15. Everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So, looking on to John 3.16 and following. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. The one who believes in him is not condemned but the one who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the, one, the only begotten Son of God. The basis for the judgment the light has come into the world, yet people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. In fact, everyone who practices wicked things hates the light and does not come toward the light, or else his deeds would be exposed. But the one who does what is true comes toward the light in order that his deeds may be seen as having been done in connection with God. Well, let's look at verse 16, and I want to talk about, well, first of all, talk about four. Uh, four is one of those words that's kind of like therefore. I always see it as words that point in two directions, and they say, because this is true, this is also true. Uh, for God so loved the world. Uh, everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And in the same way, God loved the world and gave his only son. Uh, so loved. Uh, the so means in this way, or to this extent, God loved the world this much that he gave his only begotten son. Uh, I'm going to talk about the word love. And I think you, you're familiar with the Greek word agape as a word for love. And that's 1 Corinthians 13, uh, where St. Paul talks about love is patient, kind, does not envy, does not boast. Uh, it's a divine love. A love that always gives and never expects anything in return. Uh, very close to grace in its meaning. Um, I've mentioned a certain Christian writer likes to talk about Grace as God's one-way love, uh, that he loves without expecting anything in return. That's what this love is like, too. Uh, the word give is right in there. He loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son. God's giving love. God's gracious love. Uh, only begotten uh, in the NIV, it talks about the one and only Son, or some other translations may simply have only. And uh, meaning-wise, it, it, it can go either way. 
Greek word is monogene, which means can mean the only one of its kind, such as one and only, or monogene. Our word gene, genetic, generation comes from that root. And so the only born uh, or only begotten. Um, so that's the reason why some have only or one and only, some have only begotten. Um, the original Greek word can go either way. Uh, he, he gave his best. Uh, he gave something that's a part of it. Think of the mystery of the Trinity, how God is one and yet God is three, and then God the Son walked the earth, and the Father gave him up. God did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, and along with him he'll graciously give us all things. In Romans 8, that's very much a parallel thought to this. And why did God give us his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life? This tells us about what faith is and what faith does. The gift is something that God already gives, but that we believe we received what he gives. Uh, not perish but have eternal life. Think of have eternal life in this verse as being present tense, not future. You have eternal life now because you have your connection with your God through Jesus. Then, and this is why I think it's the disciple John expanding on verse 15 because John goes back. That's a uh, characteristic of John and his writing. So he goes back and he expands. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Think about how Jesus dealt with his enemies. He didn't zap the Pharisees with lightning, even though he had many opportunities to do so. He answered their questions, sometimes stumped them, sometimes uh, zinged them with divine wisdom, but he did not zap them. He didn't destroy them. Uh, I think I may have talked about uh, Gnostic Gospels and Apocryphal Gospels and there was an Apocryphal Infancy Gospel a fake Gospel written about Jesus as a three-year-old child playing with his playmate somebody makes fun of him and he turns this playmate into stone well first of all it's a fake Gospel uh, but it's also a fake Gospel because God did not send his son into the world to condemn, but to save the world. Uh, there was a time when James and John asked Jesus, shall we call down lightning from heaven on these people who rejected us? 
and that Jesus says, no, that's not the right time. Uh, he condemned them for their anger rather than condemning the people who rejected them. Uh, verse 18, the one who believes in him is not condemned, but the one who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the one and only, the only begotten Son of God. Uh, expanding that thought of Those who believe in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Um, this is the basis for the judgment. The light has come into the world, yet people love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. Um, we see this in our world today. When there are awful things and people seem to love them, and why is that? Well, their deeds are evil and they love the darkness rather than light. People do horrible things. We think of, well, the, the pro-life and pro-abortion arguments and people steadfastly defend their right to take other human life. And they love the darkness. We see people defending, uh, rioting and violence. Why? It's darkness. It's chaos. It's not building anything up. It's disaster and ruin. Uh, light comes into the world, yet people love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. We know that back to chapter 1, this is John coming around, talking about light and darkness yet again. Uh, the light has come into the world. Who or what is he talking about? He's talking about Jesus, Jesus and his gospel of love. Jesus and his mission to save all people by his own sacrifice. The light has come into the world. And now what's going to happen toward the end of the Gospel of John? People love darkness. They love themselves. They love the world and the life that they've built for themselves rather than the life and light that Jesus has to give. So the Jewish council condemns Jesus. The crowd in Pilate's courtyard shouts, crucify him. Uh, their deeds are evil. In fact, everyone who practices wicked things hates the light and does not come toward the light or his deeds would be exposed. That's the nature of light and darkness. And that's, historically, people have thought of darkness as uh, a time when evil things are done. There we are. In our time, we don't quite know what darkness is because we've got streetlights everywhere. Uh, 
but in ancient times when it was dark, it was very dark. And people used that darkness to cover their evil deeds. People use darkness today, uh, they use lies to obscure what they're doing. Uh, the one who does what is true, more literally, the one who does the truth, comes toward the light in order that his deeds may be seen as having been done in connection with God. Uh, the truth has nothing to hide. Jesus has nothing to hide. Uh, Christianity is not uh, a cult. True Christianity is not a cult. We have no secrets. What are you Christians about? Here's a Bible. This is what we're about. Uh, a cult is something that uh, you have to work your way up to, to learn the secrets. something that we do with our kids. We teach them a catechism class. These are the truths of God in the framework of the Bible. This is what we're all about. And that's what Jesus was doing with Nicodemus. This is how God gives people a new birth. Uh, this is what I'm all about. We are going to stop here at verse 21. And that will be our, our lesson for the week. We'll pick it up with the rest of chapter 3. And just as John keeps coming back to certain subjects, he's going to come back and talk about John the Baptist again. Uh, so God's blessings on your week. And next video will be next Monday at 7. God's blessings to you.